it was fun listening to Paul and Robert speaking together about literature. The comparison of Jane Austen and Joan Lindsay is, of course, a bit daring. I understand very well the point of comparison, namely the way things are described, the pace of the narrative, and Robert mentioned the exploration of time. But to me, in general, the book is much more about suspense. It gives an ambience at the same time. It creates this ambience, or it mirrors this ambience in a pension. And we imagine this old-fashioned way of educating girls, which corresponds, certainly, to old-fashioned ways of educating girls at Jane Austen's time. But for the rest, the general feeling is completely different to me, because in Jane Austen the suspense is will the relationship between that young girl and this young man come to fruition? What are their perceptions? What happened? How did the relationship develop? So it's much more related to the fact of acquiring a life through a man for a girl. (laughs) And in that sense, um, it's not at all the gist or the the main fact that attached me to the book of Mrs. Lindsay. I don't think 18th century writers paid much attention to building a suspense in their books. It went without saying if you were attached to a destiny, you wanted to get to know what the destiny of that person would become. Life was a suspense and not a mysterious disappearance whose reasons you want to know. A disappearance which is dramatic, but somewhat anecdotal, it seems. You don't learn much about the protagonists except for the fact that the one is an adventurous girl. And that's it. There is a lot of emptiness in that suspense. Not, we, we don't learn much during the suspense. <laughs> it's uh, hooking you, but not feeding you. <laughs> but I think I have a problem with suspense in films and books. They are basic so-called dirty tricks (laughs) instead of hooking the reader in a different way. You just create a dramatic suspense and I dislike being manipulated, I guess. 
or it is rather my intellectual self who dislikes that of course my emotional self agrees to be manipulated my lower self as it were <laughs> i remember my reading joseph andrews by henry fielding the book was written in 1742 to me this was really funny the way he addressed the reader about the book about the writing of the book i don't remember there is such an address to the reader in picnic at hanging rock but there is irony a bit the same way as in tolstoy's anna karenina at the beginning when the husband has been unfaithful and the narrator is ironic towards him similar irony is in the stream of consciousness treatment by george elliot in middle march as well I've just read the beginning of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina again and uh, the irony I had perceived some years ago is not as direct as I thought namely the narrator doesn't precisely criticize the character there is irony but rather an explanation of the complex judgments and reflections of a man who finds justifications for himself and of the way he treats his wife this is very interesting but you can't really say there is explicit distance by the narrator there's rather a cruel ironic view of the reality inside a person behaving differently from the way he judges if you see what i mean prince oblonsky steva reproaches himself with not having shown a different attitude than a silly smile to his wife it doesn't change anything really except for her being hurt longer because he smiled and he thinks this was stupid from him this is the only kind of regret is capable of he doesn't regret what he did namely betray her with a governess he even thinks a governess was worthwhile he was entitled somehow to betray his wife because she wasn't interesting anymore <laughs> but the only thing he regrets is 
He smiled at her when she revealed she knew about this affair. He smiled at his wife. This is what he doesn't forgive himself. To me, this is a bit ironic because normal, let's say, honest people should regret what they did and not just regret their gestures. They're not keeping up appearances. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Everything was in confusion in the Oblonsky's house. The wife had discovered that the husband was carrying on an intrigue with a French girl who had been a governess in their family, and she had announced to her husband that she could not go on living in the same house with him. This position of affairs had now lasted three days, and not only the husband and wife themselves, but all the members of their family and household were painfully conscious of it. Every person in the house felt that there was no sense in their living together, and that the stray people brought together by chance in any inn had more in common with one another than they the members of the family and household of the Oblonskys. The wife did not leave her own room. The husband had not been at home for three days. The children ran wild all over the house. The English governess quarrelled with the housekeeper and wrote to a friend asking her to look out for a new situation for her. The man-cook had walked off the day before just at dinner-time. The kitchen-maid and the coachman had given warning. Three days after the quarrel, Prince Stepan Arkadievich Oblonsky, Stiva as he was called in the fashionable world, woke up at his usual hour, that is, at eight o'clock in the morning, not in his wife's bedroom, but on the leather-covered sofa in his study. He turned over his stout, well-cared-for person on the springy sofa, as though he would sink into a long sleep again. He vigorously embraced the pillow on the other side and buried his face in it. But all at once he jumped up, sat up on the sofa and opened his eyes. Yes, yes, how was it now, he thought, going over his dream. Now, how was it, to be sure, Aladdin was giving her dinner at Darmstadt. No, not Darmstadt, but something American, yes. But then Darmstadt was in America. Yes, Alabin was giving a dinner on glass tables, and the table sang, Il mio tesoro, not Il mio tesoro, though, but something better, and there were some sort of little decanters on the table, and they were women, too. Stepan Arkadievich's eyes twinkled gaily, and he pondered with a smile. Yes, it was nice, very nice. There was a great deal more that was delightful. Only there's no putting it into words or even expressing it in one's thoughts awake. 
and noticing a gleam of light peeping in beside one of the serge curtains, he cheerfully dropped his feet over the edge of the sofa and felt about with them for his slippers, a present on his last birthday worked for him by his wife on gold-coloured Morocco. And as he had done every day for the last nine years, he stretched out his hand without getting up towards the place where his dressing gown always hung in his bedroom, and thereupon he suddenly remembered that he was not sleeping in his wife's room, but in his study, and why? The smile vanished from his face. He knitted his brows. Oh, oh he muttered, recalling everything that had happened. And again... Every detail of his quarrel with his wife was present to his imagination, all the hopelessness of his position, and, worst of all, his own fault. Yes, she won't forgive me, and she can't forgive me. And the most awful thing about it is that it's all my fault, all my fault, though I'm not to blame. That's the point of the whole situation, he reflected. Oh, 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 he kept repeating in despair, as he remembered the acutely painful sensations caused him by this quarrel. Most unpleasant of all was the first minute when, on coming, happy and good-humoured from the theatre with a huge pear in his hand for his wife, he had not found his wife in the drawing-room, to his surprise, had not found her in the study either, and saw her at last in her bedroom with the unlucky letter that revealed everything in her hand. She, his dolly, forever fussing and worrying over household details and limited in her ideas as he considered, was sitting perfectly still with the letter in her hand, looking at him with an expression of horror, despair and indignation. What's this? This? she asked, pointing to the letter. And at this recollection, Stepan Arkadyevich, as is so often the case, was not so much annoyed at the fact itself as at the way in which he had met his wife's words. There happened to him, at that instant, what does happen to people when they are unexpectedly caught in something very disgraceful. He did not succeed in adapting his face to the position in which he was placed towards his wife by the discovery of his fault. Instead of being hurt, denying, defending himself, begging forgiveness, instead of remaining indifferent even, anything would have been better than what he did do. His face utterly, involuntarily, reflects spinal action, reflected Stepan Arkadyevich, who was fond of physiology. Utterly, involuntarily, assumed its habitual, good-humoured, and therefore idiotic smile. This idiotic smile he could not forgive himself. Catching sight of that smile, Dolly shuddered as though at physical pain, broke out with her characteristic heat into a flood of cruel words, and rushed out of the room, 
Since then, she had refused to see her husband. It's that idiotic smile that's to blame for it all, thought Stepan Arkadyevich. But what's to be done? What's to be done? He said to himself in despair and found no answer. Chapter 2 Stepan Arkadyevich was a truthful man in his relations with himself. He was incapable of deceiving himself and persuading himself that he repented of his conduct. He could not at this date repent of the fact that he, a handsome, susceptible man of thirty-four, was not in love with his wife, the mother of five living and two dead children, and only a year younger than himself. All he repented of was that he had not succeeded better in hiding it from his wife. But he felt all the difficulty of his position and was sorry for his wife, his children and himself. Possibly he might have managed to conceal his sins better from his wife if he had anticipated that the knowledge of them would have had such an effect on her. He had never clearly thought out the subject, but he had vaguely conceived that his wife must long ago have suspected him of being unfaithful to her and shut her eyes to the fact. He had even supposed that she, a worn-out woman, no longer young or good-looking, and in no way remarkable or interesting, merely a good mother, ought from a sense of fairness to take an indulgent view. It had turned out quite the other way. Oh, it's awful. Oh dear, oh dear, awful. Stepan Arkadyevich kept repeating to himself, and he could think of nothing to be done. And how well things were going up till now, how well we got on. She was contented and happy in her children. I never interfered with her in anything. I let her manage the children and the house just as she liked. It's true, it's bad, her having been a governess in our house. That's bad. There's something common, vulgar, in flirting with one's governess. But what a governess! He vividly recalled the roguish black eyes of Mademoiselle Roland and her smile. But after all, while she was in the house, I kept myself in hand. And the worst of it all is that she's already, it seems, as if ill luck would have it so. Oh, oh, but what, what is to be done? There was no solution but that universal solution which life gives to all questions, even the most complex and insoluble. That answer is... One must live in the needs of the day, that is, forget oneself. To forget himself in sleep was impossible now, at least till night-time. He could not go back now to the music sung by the decanter women. So he must forget himself in the dream of daily life. Then we shall see... Stepan Arkadyevich said to himself, and getting up, he put on a grey dressing gown lined with blue silk, tied the tassels in a knot, and drawing a deep breath of air into his broad bare chest, he walked to the window with his usual confident step, turning out his feet that carried his full frame so easily.
he pulled up the blind and rang the bell loudly. It was at once answered by the appearance of an old friend, his valet, Matvi, carrying his clothes, his boots, and a telegram. So, Mrs. Bulstrode thinks her niece is engaged to Lydgate, and she wants to know about it. Mrs. Bulstrode drove to her niece with a mind newly weighted. She was herself handsomely dressed, but she noticed, with a little more regret than usual, that Rosamond, who was just come in and met her in walking dress, was almost as expensively equipped. Mrs. Bulstrode was a feminine, smaller edition of her brother, and had none of her husband's low-toned pallor. She had a good honest glance, and used no circumlocution. You are alone, I see, my dear, she said, as they entered the drawing-room together, looking round gravely. Rosamond felt sure that her aunt had something particular to say, and they sat down near each other. Nevertheless, the quilling inside Rosamond's bonnet was so charming that it was impossible not to desire the same kind of thing for Kate, and Mrs. Bulstrode's eyes, which were rather fine, rolled round that ample quilt circuit while she spoke. I have just heard something about you that has surprised me very much, Rosamond. What is that, aunt? Rosamond's eyes also were roaming over her aunt's large embroidered collar. I can hardly believe it that you should be engaged without my knowing it, without your father's telling me. Here Mrs. Bulstrode's eyes finally rested on Rosamond's, who blushed deeply and said, I'm not engaged, aunt. How is it that everyone says so, then, that it is the town's talk? The town's talk is of very little consequence, I think, said Rosamond, inwardly gratified. Oh, my dear, be more thoughtful. Don't despise your neighbours so. Remember you are turned twenty-two now, and you will have no future. Your father, I'm sure, will not be able to spare you anything. Mr. Lidgett is very intellectual and clever. I know there is an attraction in that. I like talking to such men myself, and your uncle finds him very useful. But the profession is a poor one here. To be sure, this life is not everything, but it is seldom a medical man has true religious views. There is too much pride of intellect, and you are not fit to marry a poor man. Mr. Lidgett is not a poor man, aunt. He has very high connections. He told me himself he was poor. That is, because he is used to people who have a high style of living. My dear Rosamond, you must not think of living in high style. Rosamond looked down and played with her reticule. She was not a fiery young lady, and had no sharp answers, 
but she meant to live as she pleased. Then it is really true, said Mrs. Bolstrode, looking very earnestly at her niece. You are thinking of Mr. Lydgate. There is some understanding between you, though your father doesn't know. Be open, my dear Rosamond. Mr. Lydgate has really made you an offer? Poor Rosamond's feelings were very unpleasant. She had been quite easy as to Lydgate's feeling and intentions, but now when her aunt put this question, she did not like being unable to say yes. Her pride was hurt, but her habitual control of manner helped her. Pray excuse me, aunt, I would rather not speak on the subject. You would not give your heart to a man without a decided prospect, I trust, my dear, and think of the two excellent offers I know of that you have refused, and one still within your reach, if you will not throw it away. I knew a very great beauty who married badly at last by doing so, and so on. But a girl should keep her heart within her own power. I should never give it to Mr. Ned Plymdale if it were. I have already refused him. If I loved, I should love at once and without change, said Rosamond with a great sense of being a romantic heroine and playing the part prettily. I see how it is, my dear, said Mrs. Bulstrode in a melancholy voice, rising to go. You have allowed your affections to be engaged without return. No, indeed, aunt, said Rosamond with emphasis. Then you are quite confident that Mr. Lydgate has a serious attachment to you? Rosamond's cheeks by this time were persistently burning, and she felt much mortification. She chose to be silent, and her aunt went away all the more convinced. Mr. Bulstrode, in things worldly and indifferent, was disposed to do what his wife bade him, and she now, without telling her reasons, desired him on the next opportunity to find out in conversation with Mr. Lydgate whether he had any intention of marrying soon. The result was a decided negative. Mr. Bulstrode, on being cross-questioned, showed that Lydgate had spoken as no man would who had any attachment that could issue in matrimony. Mrs. Bulstrode now felt that she had a serious duty before her, and she soon managed to arrange a tete-a-tete with Lydgate, in which she passed from inquiries about Fred Vince's health and expressions of her sincere anxiety for her brother's large family to general remarks on the dangers which lay before young people with regard to their settlement in life. Young men were often wild and disappointing, making little return for the money spent on them, and a girl was exposed to many circumstances which might interfere with her prospects especially when she has great attractions and her parents see much company, said Mrs. Bulstrode. 
Gentlemen pay her attention and engross her all to themselves for the mere pleasure of the moment, and that drives off others. I think it is a heavy responsibility, Mr. Lydgate, to interfere with the prospects of any girl. Here Mrs. Bulstrode fixed her eyes on him with an unmistakable purpose of warning, if not of rebuke. Clearly, said Lydgate, looking at her, perhaps even staring a little in return. On the other hand, a man must be a great coxcomb to go about with the notion that he must not pay attention to a young lady lest she should fall in love with him, and lest others should think she must. Oh, Mr. Lydgate, you know well what your advantages are. You know that our young men here cannot cope with you. Were you frequent a house, it may militate very much against a girl's making a desirable settlement in life and prevent her from accepting offers, even if they are made. Lydgate was less flattered by his advantage over the Middlemarch Orlandos than he was annoyed by the perception of Mrs. Bulstrow's meaning. She felt that she had spoken as impressively as it was necessary to do, and that in using the superior word militate, she had thrown a noble drapery over a mass of particulars which were still evident enough. Lydgate was fuming a little, pushed his hair back with one hand, felt curiously in his waistcoat pocket with the other, and then stooped to beckon the tiny black spaniel which had the insight to decline his hollow caresses. It would not have been decent to go away because he had been dining with other guests and had just taken tea, but Mrs. Bulstrode, having no doubt that she had been understood, turned the conversation.